This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's a little bittersweet. We say goodbye to John this morning, uh, last sermon in this uh, journey through his first letter. And uh, this is sermon 15. And so we're going to wrap up this morning, John's first letter. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for the opportunity this morning to come and worship you through your Son, by your Holy Spirit. And uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this friend of yours, our brother, John the Apostle, who has written out of his Holy Spirit-inspired heart to us these last several months now to instruct us about what it means to know you and what it means to know that we know you. And so as we say goodbye to this letter for now, we pray that you would not let the things that we have considered in it be taken away with it, but that those truths about who you are and how we are called to live in light of who you are would remain with us, that we would be indelibly marked by greater faithfulness to Jesus, by greater understanding of who he is, by greater conformity to his moral will and obedience to his commands, and greater sacrificial care for one another as his body. Holy Spirit, you alone can do these things in us, so we ask you to produce the fruit that we ask for in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since it is the Christmas season, I've got a Christmas theme this morning as we wrap up John's letter. And uh, in these brief verses, in chapter 5, verses 13 through 21, John's going to leave us with four gifts. He's going to remind us of four gifts that God gives to his children. And these are precious gifts. And if you're one of God's children, these should be gifts you should be eager and ready to receive from God's hand this morning, knowing that as God's child, you already have them, they're yours. And so let's, even though they may be somewhat obscured and wrapping and put under the tree, let's unwrap them again and let's appreciate afresh just what we have as a gift of God this morning. Here's the first gift. Gift number one is eternal life with God. Eternal life with God. That's been a continual theme that John has written about to us these last several weeks, but I want us to appreciate it again this morning. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Could anything be more precious than that? Think about it. Eternal life is something we presently possess. We considered that last week. That if you are a believer this morning in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what John says eternal life is limited to. Not everybody has eternal life. John says, Only those who believe in the name of the Son of God have eternal life, right? He said last week that he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. But we who have the Son have life. And this is something even more precious. Not that you have it, not that you have it as a result of believing in Jesus, but think about this. God wants you to know that you have it. It is not only the will of the Apostle John, but it's the will of God himself that you know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want you wandering through life, wondering, am I in, am I out, am I a Christian, am I not, I don't know, who can know? No, he wants you to know. He wants you to know, and you can know because eternal life does not reside in you. It resides in the Lord Jesus Christ to whom you are united by faith. And that's why... 
Eternal life is a great gift because eternal life, as we said last week, is in a person, the Lord Jesus, and by faith we get united to him, and therefore you, eternal life is a gift. It's not something we earn. It's not something we merit. It's not something we have to work for. It's something we receive. So what is exactly does it mean to have eternal life? This is not so much what we talked about last week. We mostly focused on that believers have it, but what does it mean to have eternal life? Well, 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 gives us a clue. He says in chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So eternal life consists in part in passing out of spiritual death and into spiritual life through the death of Jesus Christ. So this is confirmed again and again and again, not only in this letter that John wrote, but remember he also wrote a gospel, an account of the life of Jesus called the Gospel of John. And again and again there we see that eternal life is experienced in terms of escaping death, physical death. We will pass through physical death, but we will escape ultimately spiritual death and judgment. And we will be brought into a fuller experience of the life that we presently have, which is an eternal relationship with an eternal person. That's what eternal life is all about. Did you notice in as Larry was reading in chapter 5, verse 20, that Jesus Christ is described in two ways, as the true God, but as the eternal life. So see, eternal life is not just about us going to heaven and you know, getting on clouds and harps and all, the, all that stuff that you see. That's not the essence of eternal life according to the Bible. The essence of eternal life according to the Bible is fellowship with God for all eternity. That's eternal life. And so in having eternal life, we will never perish. We will never endure God's wrath. We will never come under God's judgment. We will never experience a resurrection that leads to condemnation. We will have our spiritual hunger and thirst satisfied. We'll be raised up on the last day to live forever embodied in God's presence. We'll have the light of life and never walk in darkness. We will have abundant life. We will know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. We have it now, and physical death will merely be a transition into a fuller experience of what we already possess. Now, have you ever thought about this? Why eternal life? Why does God want us as his children with him forever? Well, many people, many of God's children have thought about that for a long time. And the reason that the Bible gives and that other believers have commented on is that eternity and eternal life exist because it will take us that long to know the inexhaustible God. That's why eternal life exists, because God's eternal, and if we're going to have an eternal relationship with an eternal person, it's going to last forever. 275 years ago, there was a pastor in New England named Jonathan Edwards. And he preached a sermon on what it would be like to experience eternal life, to see and know God for all of eternity. He ponders the question of whether that's going to be a dull and boring exercise. And he comments the following about why eternal life is all joy and not dull or boring in the least. He says, The fountain that supplies the joy and delight, that is God himself, which the soul has in seeing God, is infinite. The understanding may extend itself as far as it will, 
but it does but take its flight into an endless expanse and dive into a bottomless ocean. It may discover more and more of the beauty and loveliness of God, but it will never exhaust the fountain. That's why eternal life is eternal life. And then he comments on the infinite love of God based on Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Those verses that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of God in Christ which passes knowledge. Here's what Jonathan Edwards says about that text. We can never, by soaring and descending, come to the height of the love of God. We can never, by descending, come to the depth of it or by measuring, know the length and breadth of it. Let the thoughts and desires extend themselves as they will. Here is space enough for them in which they may expand forever. How blessed, therefore, are they that do see God who are come to this inexhaustless fountain. After they have had the pleasure of beholding the face of God millions of ages, it will not grow a dull story. The relish of this delight will be as exquisite as ever. This is our end as believers. Eternal life with God. That is what God wants to occupy our hearts, capture our delight, inform our hope, shape our desires, so that as we navigate through this difficult wilderness of a life, we know this is not the end that we are headed to the promised land, that we are headed to Canaan, the heavenly Canaan, the presence of God himself. There's our first gift, eternal life with God. Gift number two, gift number two. Not only do we have eternal life with God, but we have the attentive ear of God. The attentive ear of God. Look at verses 14 and 15 of 1 John chapter five. And this is the confidence That we have toward him. Of course, knowing that you have eternal life should give give us confidence. And it does. It gives us confidence in this way. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So John wants us to understand this second gift that we have as his children. And that is the confidence that he hears us when we pray, and that he answers us in accordance with his will. You know, John last spoke of prayer in chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, where he says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. Well, there in that passage, confidence in prayer is tied to or linked to our obedience, Namely, believing in Jesus and loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. But there are two more reasons that confidence is given here in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. That is, we have eternal life, verse 13, and we ask according to his will. So John wants us to have confidence in prayer. He doesn't want us to talk to God with trepidation or fear or wonder if he's hearing us. He wants us to have absolute confidence that we hear him because We are striving to be his obedient children by loving him and loving our brothers and sisters. We are trusting in Christ. We have eternal life as a gift from him. We're seeking to ask things in accordance with his will. And so he wants us to have absolute confidence 
in God that as we pray, he will hear us. Now, I think this passage is incredibly balanced in how it talks to us about the gift of prayer, the gift of the attentive ear of God. And I think what's most important when we come to prayer is what John says first. Notice he says in verse 14, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, in verse 15. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have. See, so often we focus on the results of prayer, right? What is God going to give me for what I ask? But, you know, that's a really transactional view of prayer. And it, think about how, what kind of relationship with your father would you have if that was all the relationship consisted of? Needing money from dad. The only time I call my dad is when I need something from him. You know, and that's not the vision that John gives us. He gives us a relational one first. He says, listen, he hears you. He hears you. He's listening to you. He cares about you. And that's the, that's the most precious thing that we have. It's not the most because all parts of prayer are precious, but this is a very precious thing, that we have the attentive ear of God when we pray, that he is inclined to listen to us, that he gives us his undivided attention. And he can give his undivided attention to every single one of his kids who are praying to him all around the world right now. They all have his undivided attention because God's not limited in his attention span and attention focus like we are. He's infinite. He can give his attention to all of his kids. And what's beautiful here is the balance that we have in that he hears us. Now, he always hears our prayers and he always answers our prayers just not always in the way we expect. Because here it says that he answers our prayers in accordance with his will. So I think this is a wonderfully balancing word. By all means, and hear me on this because I don't want to undercut this at all. By all means, let us make bold requests of God. As Pastor Ted loves the quote, and this is a great hymn, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. We can never exhaust God's willingness or eagerness to hear from us and our requests. We diminish his glory when we ask petty things. So we need to ask big things, bold things. George Mueller said, that famous Christian, that man of prayer who led all so many orphanages and care for God's children in England, said prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, it's laying hold of his willingness. So it's not like we are twisting God's arm to ask him to answer prayers that he's not inclined to give us. So let us be that way. Let us ask boldly. Let us come not reluctantly. Let us not view our God as stingy. He hears us. But, brothers and sisters, having said that and wanting to emphasize that, let me also encourage us to learn the sweetness that accompanies his no and his not yet. Have you known that? Do you know the sweetness of his no? Do you know the sweetness of his not yet? We should be thankful for both God's yeses and God's no's. 
How often are you thankful to God for the ways in which he doesn't answer your prayers according to your will? Can you thank him? Will you thank him? We should thank him. This is what Scotty Smith says about that very subject. He says in prayer, a prayer I read this week, he says, thank you for not saying yes to all our prayers. For sometimes we ask for things that will simply make life easier and minimize our pain, not for things that will make us more like Jesus, bringing true and lasting freedom. Our demanding hearts often want you to be more like same-day Amazon delivery rather than Abba Father. Or as he says, sometimes we treat God like sugar daddy rather than Abba Father. Thank you for not giving in to our pouting and tantrums and attitude of entitlement. Our impatient hearts would settle for fool's gold rather than the riches of your grace. Thank you for your wisdom and big picture fathering. See, I like that term, big picture fathering. Does God see things that we don't see? Does God know things we don't know? Well, is it not true that if we knew everything that God knows, we would ask for whatever he gives? Surely we would. So does our Savior not model this for us in the garden? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is what... New Testament scholar and commentator Karen Job says, she says, since in any given situation we may not know whether what we're asking is God's will, whenever it seems God has not answered, we must receive that in the confidence of knowing that we were heard. We do have what we ask according to his will, even if his will is no or not yet. So there's the balance, right? Let us come to God, we have his attentive ear, but we ask according to his will, and we sweetly submit to whatever that will may be. Gift number three, gift number three, spiritual protection by God. Eternal life with God, tenevere of God, spiritual protection by God. The third gift that God gives us is spiritual protection, specifically protection from sin and its consequences. Now I want you to notice verses 16 through 19. Let's read those again. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, He shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, the word sin appears seven times in verses 16 through 18. I think it's the main theme. Before we attempt to, though, explain the tougher parts of this passage, which are no doubt tough, um, like the sin that leads to death and the sin that doesn't lead to death, let's just step back for a minute, okay? This is what I was telling you last week about how we encounter difficult passages. How do you interpret those things? How do you deal with those things? Well, the first thing you need to do is look at the immediate context, but then the second thing you need to do is, okay, what has John already said about sin? What are all the things that in the first four chapters, four and a half, five and a half chapters, really, that he's already written about a Christian's relationship to sin? Because whatever those things are, it can't contradict what's here. He's not going to contradict himself in chapter five. So what has John said about our relationship to sin as Christians already? I'm just going to summarize. I can't, I don't have time to take us to all the passages. As God's children, John told us that we have been freed from the penalty of sin 
through the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf, right? Chapter 1, verse 7, we have been cleansed. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He uses that word twice, chapter 2, verse 2, and chapter 4, verse 10. So we are freed from having to pay for our sins. So whatever the sin that leads to death means, it's not a form of judicial, eternal condemnation for sin for a Christian believer. Okay, so as God's children then, in this life, we will continue, though, to struggle with sin. Right? Chapter 1, verse 8, John tells us, don't be deceived. Don't think you don't have any sin. If you say you don't have any sin, you're a liar, and you're calling God a liar. You know you have sin, so we struggle. But Jesus is our advocate, and God reassures us that our ongoing confessed sins are forgiven. Chapter 1, verse 9. However, in addition to telling us that we've been freed from the penalty of sin through the death of Jesus and that the presence of sin will still remain in us, nevertheless, he also emphasizes something very important, that while sin remains, it does not reign. While sin is present, it is not president. It is not determining the shape and function of your life. We are told again and again that we manifest the reality that our sins truly are forgiven and that we truly are the children of God by our willingness to continually repent of sin and fight against it. No one born of God continues to sin unrepentantly and recklessly. And that any unwillingness to, or lack of repentance towards sin should be met with fear that you may not possess eternal life that you possess to have, or you profess to have. You may not possess what you profess to have. The way you know that you possess what you profess to have is to look at your practice. Look at your life. Is it marked by repentance from known sin? If it is, you're a child of God. You're a child of God. So then what is John referring to here? Having said that, knowing that nothing he says here is going to contradict what he's already written, what does he say here? It's hard. Sam Storm's New Testament scholar writes the following about this passage. He says, this text will probably persist in its infamous claim to be one of the most perplexing in all the New Testament until Christ returns and set us all straight. And then he says, in the meantime... Hermeneutical humility is the wise course to pursue. What does he mean by hermeneutical? That's a big word, right? It just means interpretation. When we come to interpret, hermeneutics is the study science of biblical interpretation. So what he's saying is be humble about your interpretation here. Don't be dogmatic. Don't keep it in the closed hand. Keep it in the open hand. And that's where we're going to put it this morning. We're going to put this interpretation squarely in the open hand because there are lots of believers. I read probably 15 different Christians And hardly any of them saw eye to eye on this text. And they're all men I highly respect and some women that I highly respect as well for their study of the scriptures. And so what we see here is I'm going to give you my hermeneutically humble, I trust, interpretation of this passage. I think it can primarily refer to two things. I'm not sure which one is actually correct, but I'll give you my inclination later. Some, and this is a common interpretation, is that the sin that leads to death refers to physical death. So in other words, they would see it as a Christian who has wandered off into sin, 
whom God has brought to heaven early because of their unwillingness to deal with that sin and its potential consequences for their lives. Now, just to be clear, that's a biblical truth. God does kill some of his kids for their sin. Not in a judgmental, judicious way, like he's going to condemn them to hell forever, but in order to bring them to hell. We see this perhaps, probably, with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. We also see this in 1 Corinthians 11 with the Lord's Supper. Some of them are sick and some of them have died because of their unwillingness to deal with their personal sin and continue to take the Lord's Supper. That is a real thing. We need to deal with that. It's an encouragement to deal with your sin. Now, that doesn't mean that anytime someone gets sick or anytime someone dies, it's related to sin. That's clear in the Bible too. John chapter 9. The, remember, the disciples are being questioned, why was this man born blind? Did he do something? Did his mom sin? His dad sin? Somebody sinned, right? He said, no, nobody sinned. He's not blind because of anybody's sin, not even his sin. He's blind so that the glory of God will be seen and getting ready to do what I'm about to do which is give him sight. So we can't speak and we need to be very careful because we don't know these things. You can't announce that over somebody. Well, they were clearly died early because they were in sin or they clearly, uh, you know, got that disease. No, 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 no. God knows that. We don't know that. But that does not uh, undermine the truth that physical death is sometimes a consequence for earthly sin. But I'm not persuaded that that's what John's talking about here for two reasons, and I'm going to give them to you. Here's here's what's going on. Notice this in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he will ask and God will give him life. Now, death and life are the two key words here. And this is an overwhelming argument for me because it carries a whole lot of weight biblically. The word death is only used one other time in 1 John, and it specifically refers to spiritual death not physical death. First John chapter 3, verse 14, we've already read it. I'm not going to read it again. And here's even the stronger case. Every single use of the word of life in 1 John refers to eternal life, not physical life. And that's what he's contrasting here. He's contrasting eternal life, life with, with eternal death. So that leads us to a second possible interpretation. Now, could John have changed his meaning talking about physical life and physical death? Sure. And would it be true? Absolutely. Because it's taught in other parts of Scripture. But this truth is also taught in other parts of Scripture, which helps us when we come to difficult passages. Because as long as the truths are taught elsewhere in the Bible, we can still wrestle with this and struggle with this and know, hey, I'm not sure exactly what he's saying right here, but I know that in other parts of the Bible, it's affirming what I'm saying. So I think he is referring to spiritual death. The ESV study Bible helpfully explains this and gives a very succinct summary, and I'll read that to you. Sin that does not lead to death appears to be sin for which forgiveness is possible because forgiveness is sought through repentance and God graciously forgives. Sin that leads to death is probably sin that is not repented of and is of the kind or nature that John has warned about throughout the letter. That is resolute rejection of the true doctrine about Christ, chronic disobedience to God's commands, persistent lack of love for fellow believers, all indications of a lack of saving faith which will not be forgiven. So I like this interpretation because it takes the immediate context of 1 John into mind. What is John's concern in this letter? 
He's trying to help his readers be assured that they have eternal life contrary to what the false teachers he is writing against are claiming. These false teachers are in some way denying or minimizing the work of Christ on the cross. We saw that last week. They were preaching a water-only gospel, whatever that means, but it certainly did not include a blood, Christ-on-the-cross atonement emphasis. They are repudiating the testimony that John gave last week concerning Jesus as the Son of God. Remember those testimonies? The testimony that God gave, the testimony that the Son gave, the testimony that the Spirit gave, the testimony that the apostles gave, the testimony that Christians gave. They deny it all. They reject it all. And the result of rejecting this testimony is to put themselves outside the realm of salvation. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. That is, they are in the realm of spiritual death. So John is warning here that if we depart from fellowship with Christ and his people, we are in the realm of death and we expose ourselves to eternal condemnation if we don't repent, thereby revealing that we were never truly followers of Christ. I don't think John has a specific sin in mind. I don't think that John's talking about a particular sin. I think John is referring to a pattern of behavior of a believer leaving the fellowship, walking away, and we notice that, and that person should have no confidence at all when they're walking away from the fellowship because of sin, to pursue other gods or other lords, not operating under the lordship of Jesus, they should have zero assurance that they have eternal life. And they may find it that if they continue to depart, continue to walk away, continue to be unrepentant, they will reveal themselves to be an unbeliever, they will reveal themselves to not have eternal life, and they will reveal themselves to be under the realm of death. Now, what is he talking about when he says, you know, if you see a brother sin, that sin does not seem, not seem to lead to death, this one seems to lead to death. It's, it's talking about an emphasis, a, a, a degree, a degree of sin, a way in which this sinner, this brother, professed brother is behaving is potentially opening him up to the reality of spiritual death. He might, might find himself in the camp of Esau, going on in sin, persisting in sin, and then eventually being unwilling to do it and unable to do it. And so this is meant to be a gracious, loving warning from God to us. Do not play with sin. Don't play with it. Now, here's the encouragement to you. There's plenty of encouragement in this passage that we're going to get to. If you're a true believer, how do you respond to that? Makes you fearful, doesn't it? Makes you fearful, makes you, I'm going to cling to Christ. I'm going to hold on to Jesus. He's holding on to me. I'm going to hold on to him. I'm not going to play with sin. That's the intent of John in this passage. Remember, he's writing to believers who are susceptible to being influenced by these false teachers. And he says, if you go with them, if you leave them, as much as I've pled with you in this letter, you don't have any confidence that you should have eternal life. Those men have departed from the faith. Those women have departed from the faith. They're trying to get you to depart from the faith. Don't go with them. If you go with them, you will, and it goes unrepented of and persistent, you have committed the sin that leads to death. Or you have be, you're behaving in a way that reveals that you're not a believer and that your sin is going to result in eternal condemnation. I think that's what he's talking about. I can't be for sure, but I think that's what he's talking about. 
So let me emphasize what his main point is, though. His main point is not to solve all that for us. His main point is to remind us that we're protected. How are we protected, brothers and sisters? Look, we have two forms of spiritual protection in this passage that should encourage us deeply. First of all, we got brothers and sisters in the church who love us. Do you notice that? He says, if anyone sees his brother and also his sister committing sin, that's what it literally says. It doesn't say, I mean, we, we can put a sin in there, but it's just sin. Committing sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. So the prayers of God's people for us are a precious means of our spiritual preservation that God would bring us back. John reminds us of our need for one another in the church. We need to keep an eye on one another. The Lord uses the church as a place of spiritual protection. This is why building our lives in and through the church is so important. We do this for our own spiritual protection, but we also do this for the protection of our brothers and sisters. But even greater than human protection and human prayers is Christ's protection and Christ's prayers. Because remember, he is our advocate before the Father. And notice what John says right on the heels of talking about this sin that leads to death and sin that doesn't lead to death. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. He will not behave unrepentantly towards sin. He will not walk away from Jesus decisively and finally. Will he struggle? Yes. Will he fall? Yes. Will he decisively cut ties with Christ and his people? No. Because he's been born of God, he says. And notice this. But he who was born of God protects him. I think that's a reference to Jesus. Jesus protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Now, that doesn't mean that Satan can't have influence in the lives of believers. We see that in the story of Job, but it means touch in the sense of bringing about their eternal doom, bringing them to hell. Then verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but you, my brothers, he's writing, and sisters are not in that realm anymore. You've been born of God. You don't keep on sinning. You repent of known sin you're born of God, Jesus protects you, the evil one does not touch you, even though the whole world lies in his power, you are not of the world, you are of God. So that's the encouragement. That's even in the midst of a sober, strong warning, he brackets this passage in incredible encouragement. And I hope you'll take that away, because that's the meaning, that's the gift. The gift is spiritual protection. And God is kind enough in the way he protects us to both warn us of consequences and to provide us with assurance. That's what a good father does. Gift number four, very quickly, the final one. Kind reassurance from God. Kind reassurance from God. Notice, again, he couples promise with warning, with a gracious word and a faithful word. It says in verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he, Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. David Pallison, Christian counselor, answers an insightful question. I think a question we should all know. Because doesn't John end kind of like the book of Jonah ends? You read the book of Jonah where it's just kind of out of the blue. God's talking about cattle. And how, and you're just like, whoa, that was kind of jarring. 
that must be there must be a sequel because that didn't make sense. I'm, I'm, we're waiting for this part two, and that's kind of what we get here. It's like John saying, "Little children, keep yourselves from idols," and it's like, "Woo!" Didn't expect a command in the letter. I thought he ended verse twenty. End on Jesus' note, right? He's the true God and eternal life. But no, he slips this in. He says, "Keep yourselves from idols." And here's what David Pallison says about why perhaps John did such a thing. He says, in a 105-verse treatise on living, which is this letter, on living in vital fellowship with Jesus, the Son of God, how on earth does that unexpected command merit being the final word? Has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? Who or what rules my behavior? The Lord or a substitute? In contrast, to keep yourselves from idols is to live with a whole heart of faith in Jesus. It is to be controlled by all that lies behind the address, little children. That's what he says. He says, John says here, listen, we know who the Son of God is. He is the true God, which is an amazing claim of the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God. He's the true God and eternal life, and he's given us understanding so that we might have a relationship with him, with him who is true and that we are in him. He's got this whole, listen, you've got the truth. You know who the truth is. You're in the truth. The truth is in you. Don't depart from the truth. Don't build your life on, around, or through anything else. Don't let anything else drive your life. Determine your behavior. Don't trust in anything else to bring you permanent and lasting joy except Jesus. Don't turn good things into God things. Don't make family, success, acceptance, money, your plans, education, Retirement hopes, lifestyle, home, marriage, children, grandchildren, job, career, ministry, diet, fitness, drugs, alcohol, sex, clothes, cars, prestige, influence, hunting and fishing, entertainment, vacation, leisure, social media, or physical appearance central to your character and your commitments. It doesn't mean that any of those things is essentially wrong, but they are wrong as the drivers of your life, as the controllers of your heart, as the givers of your identity, as the setters of your schedule, as the priority of your life. They are a problem. They are idolatry. When it gets to that level, as one person I read said this week regarding our culture's immersion in one particularly good thing that can become a God thing, youth sports, He says, quote, there is a 0.029% chance that your child will become a pro athlete. There is a 0.0086% chance that your child will become a famous celebrity. There is a 100% chance that your child will stand before Jesus. What is setting your schedule? What's determining your priorities? What's shaping your relationships? That certainty or that incredible lottery-like uncertainty? Make knowing, loving, following, serving, and Jesus your highest and greatest good. 
Listen, idols can only take what you have. They can never give you what you want. Ever. Jesus loves you. Jesus serves you. Jesus cares for you. You are God's little children. You have found the true God and eternal life in Jesus. He is true and we are in him who is true. Please, brothers and sisters, I beg you, accept no substitutes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this kind, gracious, faithful word from the Apostle John to us this morning. His wonderful, fatherly, pastoral heart that just oozes out of this letter for not just the people to whom he was immediately writing, but to us whom the Holy Spirit has spoken to this morning through what he has written. Guard us. Thank you so much for all the gifts that we've gotten to consider that have come to us from your hand this morning. To have eternal life with you, to have the attentive ear of you, to be spiritually protected by you, and to be reassured kindly but firmly by you that once we have come into relationship with you, we have found life. And it's not found anywhere else. But we're so weak. We're so prone to wander. We're so prone to make good things into God things. And so we pray that you would protect us, that you would guard us, that you wouldn't have to come and reprove us like you did to the churches in Revelation and say, you've abandoned the love that you had at first. May this morning, even as we sing, may we be actively, prayerfully renewing our first love with you. Saying, Lord Jesus, you're my all. You're the one in whom life is found. Forgive me for my busyness. Forgive me for the lack of focus that I've had. Forgive me for the way December just robs time with you because of busyness, meeting after meeting, gathering after gathering, responsibility after responsibility, all good things, but so easily can just rip you right out of the middle of everything. Help us not to idolize anyone or anything. As Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. They're perpetually giving birth to these things. Help us by your grace by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the blood of the cross, to crucify those things, to smash them to pieces. We thank you that you've given us all we need. We thank you for the reminders this morning. Bless us as we stand to worship you again. Recenter us, bring us back to sanity, gospel sanity. And we pray all this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Let's.